Joshua. Yes, he's got a gospel for us in the Old Testament. Let's take a look. Chapter 24, verse 15. It's only a single verse. Now, again, I've said much of what we preach will be on the screen, so you can focus on the screens if you'd like. We do encourage you to bring your Bibles. You can use the Bible in the pew. And uh, if you have your own Bible, you write notes, you look back over the years, and you see what God was up to. We have a title of the message today. It's called Choosing Your Own Chains. Now, I know you're familiar with the song, My Chains Are Gone, I've Been Set Free. But I'm here to tell you that I believe that there are chains that do set us free. The key is to understand what those chains are and who you're chained to. So, Joshua 24, verse 15. Before we do that, let me give you a great quote. Sure, you all remember, really one of our great presidents, Ronald Reagan. Listen to these words, and this again will resonate with why we have a patriotic special, why we say thank you. What a powerful word from from President Reagan. Some people spend a lifetime wondering if they made a difference in the world, but the U.S. Armed Forces don't have that problem. And we are in complete agreement with President Reagan. Joshua 24, verse 15. Hear now the word of God. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Speak only your word from this pulpit. There is not a person here today interested in listening to the imagination of a man, but they hunger and they thirst for the revelation of God. Father, Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden, all things to all people. And that we pray right now, whether in this sanctuary or by way of the internet, everyone within the sound of my voice would come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come now, fount of every blessing. Give us minds to understand and ears to hear and Hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Three very simple headings before we have our last song and depart for the day. Number one, when freedom is slavery. Strange title. We'll take a look. Number two, when slavery is freedom. And then finally, number three, freedom isn't free. Let me give you another quote. There'll be a few today. Second president of the United States was? It's a history class. It's a lesson, yes. John Adams. Do you know John Adams wrote some wonderful letters to his wife, Abigail? Well, in a letter to Abigail, he was talking about the Declaration the declaration that told the world why the colonists cut ties with Britain. And when he had completed his portion, he gave it to Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin to review before it would go to the Congress for approval. 
Well, he had finished his portion on July 2nd when he wrote his letter to his Miss Abigail. So to him, July 2nd was the big day, but it took a little bit of time for Jefferson and Franklin to finish their portion to get it to the Congress and to have it adopted. That didn't happen until the 4th. So you'll see a date of the 2nd and you'll go, that's a little off. Not for John, it wasn't. That was the day he thought this had been completed, but it was finally adopted two days later and we celebrate as a nation July 4th. But listen to these words. This is a powerful statement. When people say, well, we were never a Christian nation. Where, where did you get that? Because you're not reading the real history of the founding fathers. They all were not Christian. But we were a Christian nation founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. Make no mistake about that. We were a Christianized nation. What does that mean? It doesn't mean everyone was made a Christian. But every institution saw all of life through a biblical worldview. The oldest institutions at the academy and the university were founded upon what? The Bible. Harvard. Yale. Princeton. All extensions of the church. So make no mistake. This was indeed a Christian nation. Listen to these words. To his Abigail. The second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and shows and games and sports and guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. That is the country that was founded but barely exists today. And it is the responsibility of the church to be the church in this country, to be salt and light, and to put the gospel on display. So now, two questions, and then we'll launch. How can you be free? I want you to think of this. How can you be free and in slavery? And how can you be in slavery and be free? Ready? We're going to head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, when freedom is slavery. Romans 1, 21, 22, and 24. Although, Paul writes, they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Here's a very simple statement. For us to unpack what Paul wrote in that passage. Freedom from the Savior is equal to slavery to the self. 
There's really only two kinds of people in the world, and there's only two choices. You will be in chains to yourself, or you will be in chains to your Savior. Now, when you look in that passage and you see these idols that it talks about, reptiles and birds and, 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 and trees and, and all these things, we have a tendency to let that kind of flow right over us and go, well, we don't have that problem. We're, we, we are far too sophisticated to bow down to idols. Let me, let me say this. We are far too sophisticated to bow down to bean trees and sacred cows and the sun, moon, and stars for the most part, to be sure. But we have our own idols, and they're different. We have the idols of power and prestige and position and our professions and pleasure and all of the other things that you can imagine, relationships. We bow to what our hearts desire most. And let me make this perfectly clear. What rules your heart shapes your life. Is your life shaped like a cross? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as much as it is within your power and loving your neighbor as yourself? Or are you sitting on the throne of your own life? Moving forward, here's the story. When you're speaking in this culture about Jesus and the gospel and what God in Christ has done for you, their worldview doesn't have an explanation for why the world is the way it is. The atheist has none. The Hindu has none. The Buddhist denies the fact that evil even exists. Our worldview is the only one that makes sense out of why everything is broken. Not only people are broken, but you would agree the world is broken. Hurricanes rip across South Florida and, and up through the states. Tsunamis wipe out villages. Tornadoes, flash flooding, fires, and, and you name the, the creation, Paul tells us, groans because creation was cursed when Adam and Eve fell. So let's go back to the beginning so that we can see the story. Remember, one word to one world. This is not. 66 disjointed books that you hold. It's not two testaments. It's one word with one theme. What's the theme? God's unfolding plan of redemption from beginning to end, finding its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the story. Ready? Genesis 2. This is when everything was really good. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now notice this, and tell me if this does not resonate with you. They lived in a paradise. They had every possible provision given to them. Infinite provision and one prohibition. And what does Satan get them to focus on? All that they had? No. The one thing they were not to have. Isn't that true for you and I today? Isn't that what Satan and the evil powers of darkness want us to... The, the things that we ought not to have. They don't want us to think about all we've been given. But this thing here, don't, you deserve this. God's withholding this. God doesn't really love you. He's withholding this from you. So with infinite provision, Satan says... God's not good. 
If you eat from this, you can be like God. But God said, if you do that, when you do that, you will die. And of course, most of us here know the rest of the story. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. Dr. R.C. Sproul, one of my seminary professors who's now in glory with God, would say, Tommy, I don't like the word fall. It doesn't really give us a, a strong enough category. I like to call it more of a plunge. This was a plunge from everything good to everything unimaginably bad. When I think of fall, I think of walking in the house late at night and tripping over something that's on the ground. That's a fall. We trip and fall. This was a plunge. And all of creation plunged into the abyss. Now here's... And he would say this. This was the saddest portion of Scripture that that he had come across. And he knew the Scriptures quite well. Listen to these words. They saw, they took, and they ate. They sinned. Ready? Then the eyes of both of them, verse 7, were opened. And they realized they were naked. Nakedness was a good thing at the beginning. Now it's a sign of shame and sin. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God was when he was walking in the garden. Pause. If they heard the sound, how would they know the sound? They'd heard it before. They walked with God in the cool of the day. It was what they did daily. So they heard the sound and they're getting ready now to run to their God. Yes? No. They hid They ran from the only one who who was the solution to the problem. And they run and they hide from God. But the Lord God called to the man. Notice who he speaks to. The man. Because we frame it out biblically first, right? Who was deceived? The woman. So who's the problem? You women. We clear? Some of you husbands going like, no, don't do that. I'm not done. (laughs) Dr. Larry Crabb wrote an awesome book called The Silence of Adam. Let me make it perfectly clear. Eve's responsible for what she did, but she, she, she wasn't to blame. Adam was silent. Adam should have opened his mouth. Adam should have stepped between the serpent and his wife and said, be gone. But he never said a word. And now who does God address? The man who was responsible for his wife. Men, responsible for your women. Adam, where are you? I need to ask you a question. Did God lose Adam? No, Adam lost Adam. God knew where Adam was. Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I... I think Dr. Sproul was correct. It's the saddest portion in all of Scripture. From, can you imagine walking with God in the cool of the day to now you're on the run hiding from Him? His heart and conscience has been seared by His sin. His silence is what brought us into this place. So let's keep building on this. In the New Testament, now, do we have one word from one God? Does it all support itself? Let's take a look. John John says in 834, these are the words of the Lord Jesus, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we're building a picture here. There's a point. Now, there's a point 
where there's nothing that you can do but sin. Right? You understand the form? We are all dead in our trespasses and our sins. And by natural birth, we are born with original sin. We are sinners, dead and in need of a Savior. And all we ever do, no matter what good we think it is, it is only and always sin. But after Jesus shows up, now you have the choice, listen to me, to sin or not to sin. Dr. Chapel taught in one of the classes we were taking at Knox in the doctoral program. He said, when you choose to sin, and you do choose, you just simply love sin more at that time than you do God. That's all. And when you think about it, he's right. So Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose your chains. You can be chained to yourself, or you can be chained to your Savior. But whatever you're chained to, you're a slave to. So he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And now we're going to go to Paul again in Romans. And let me give you these words, and then I'll show you the Greek word. Just briefly. Don't you know, chapter 6, verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, whoever that is, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, that's one choice, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So after Jesus shows up and raises you from death to life, you've now been given what? The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that lives in you. Now, I know we stumble, and I know we fall, and I know we sin, but we have a power in us that can stop us if we choose Him. But just so that you don't go into deep despair and you go, oh, pastor doesn't know how bad I'm messing this up. You don't know how bad I'm messing it up. So let me make something perfectly clear about the gospel that you believe in. The gospel that saved you and raised you from death to life. You have a God who loves you unconditionally and when you mess it up forgives you completely. Are we clear? That's the power to rise above sin knowing it has already been nailed to a cross. He has already given you victory over everything that you struggle with, and yet we still struggle. But greater is the power that is within you than any power you will ever come up against. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, then sin will continue to beat us. We must know that we can rise above that because greater is Jesus. Remember that. Whether you are slaves to sin or to death. Here's the Greek word doulos. I want to show you something in the next chapter. The will of the slave is completely consumed in the will of the master. So that's what the Greek word doulos, slave, means. The will is consumed in the will of the master. Whatever it is that we are a slave to. So if you're a slave to sin, the Bible says sin becomes your master. If you're a slave to the Savior... Jesus becomes your master. Okay? We clear? All right. Let's move along now. Now we're going to make it real practical because we want to look at the culture. We're not here just to get fed. We get fed in order to be able to take our feeding outside these walls and, and, and share it with people we come in contact with. 
So now the Bible tells us that we have to be ready, always be ready to give an answer to those who ask for the hope that is within you. Yes, with gentleness and kindness. Let's take a look at the culture that we're dealing with today. How do we deliver an unchanging message in now an ever-changing culture that is anti-Christian? Slogans of the slave to society. These slogans, you can think of a thousand slogans. Slogans orient us to the prevailing philosophy in our culture. Let me give you the one here under what we would call expressive individualism. Let me make, before the slogans, we used to live in a cultural context where community and family was the highest good. In the ancient world, it was like that. In some cultures today, it is still like that. Yes, some of you nod your heads, you come from those cultures. But not today. Not in this culture. Who sits on the throne of life in this culture? Me. Me. It's all about me. No matter what it costs you. I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. I want to live the life I want to live. It's what I think is true. It's what I believe. Your truth is true for you. That's fine. It's not true for me. And I don't need anybody looking over my shoulder telling me how to live. So all of that has been fragmented in society today. It's gone. So how do we communicate with them? Here's some slogans. Find yourself. It's a big one. It's on every campus. Be true to yourself. Every secular campus. Follow your heart. Okay. If, if you've been tracking with us for a long time, we, we've, we're, we're, we're working with this culture. So we're, we're, we're reading the leading experts who have been telling us about this culture. Robert Bella and a group of sociologists writing the book Habits of the Heart really brought this term expressive individualism to, to light to give us an understanding of how, how do we engage this culture that is steeped in expressive individualism where it's all about me. And no longer does it matter what the culture wants or what the family wants. I want to give you a quote here. This is Yuval Levin. He's an American political analyst, academic. He wrote The Fractured Republic. He's a journalist. Listen to these words. The term expressive individualism suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty. You're not free unless you define your own terms. I don't need God. I don't need the church. I certainly don't need that old antiquated book that you guys hold in your hands. I define the terms. This is my life. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it is, the, it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. That's what we're dealing with. So when you say that you have the truth of the scriptures, the response is, what's true? That's true for you. It's not true for me. I don't understand your language. Those words don't mean anything to me anymore. Truth is relative. It's whatever you want that truth to be. So we have to learn how to be able to engage that culture. Because they don't even believe what they're telling you they believe. They know that truth is not relative. They know that. Because there are some cultures 
when you arrive in the culture, they greet you with a hug and a holy kiss. There are other cultures when you arrive, they eat you. You okay with both of those cultures? It's their truth. So your lunch. You go, no, that doesn't work for me. What? Then your premise doesn't work. There has to be a truth somewhere. There has to be an authority somewhere. There has to be some mind somewhere that sets the standard. You know it. I know it. Mark Sayers, Australian church leader, wrote a book, The Disappearing Church. I want to give you, these are, these are seven statements that sum up the beliefs that swirl in this cultural context rooted in expressive individualism. This is what the West sees as best. You ready? Very quickly. Seven. The highest good, number one, is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the highest good. We're, you see, there's no place for community, no place for family, certainly no place for the church. Okay? Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. This is the culture we live in. You need to know this. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Sure it will. Technology, in particular, the internet, will motor this progression toward utopia. How's that working? Four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self. Listen, don't miss this. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Can I read that one more time? So don't, don't miss this. Do you understand what they just said? Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. <laughs> they seem a bit intolerant, don't they? But they don't know it. They don't even know what they're saying. Five, this is the, this, this is the one that, that really grabs my heart. Humans are inherently good. I'm not going to go deep on this. I'm just going to make a quick statement. Do you know the only people who can say that? Are those who have never been confronted by a really bad man. That's who says humans are inherently... You surround yourself with inherently good people, so your cultural context, they're inherently good. Unless you have been confronted by a bad man or a bad woman. Yes? Okay? Six million Jews went into an oven. Humans are not inherently good. Humans are not even inherently bad. Humans are dead. In trespass and sins, they are utterly broken. And only a supernatural work of God's grace from on high, delivered into the human heart, will change anything. Education does not change it. A change of location does not change it. Drugs does not change it. Behavior modification, nothing changes it. Except God's supernatural work of grace in the human heart. Humans are not inherently good. And you know that when you run into somebody bad. Six, large-scale institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And finally, number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. This is the culture. If we don't know it, it's, it's hard to share the gospel. Yes, Jesus can get him saved anyway. Faith comes by hearing, hear the word of God, tell them the word of God. But do you want to connect with them where they are? Do you want to show them that they're a person to love, not a project to lead? We want to connect with them at a heart level. And when we do, we can begin to be the church that God has called us to be and be the hands and feet of Christ.
Because it takes more time today in evangelism than it ever took before. Because you have to connect at a heart level. You have to want to get involved in their lives. And it's dirty and it's messy, as you know. Okay, this is when freedom is slavery. Now, very briefly, when is slavery freedom? You're going to get it right from the scripture. Ready for this? Philippians 1.1. Notice what the writers of these gospel books say. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I put the word slave in. Do you know why? Because commentators have taken the word slave out. Why? We have a bad reputation for slavery, and it, 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 it still gives a bad taste in our mouth in this country, as it should. Slavery was a horrible thing in this nation, yes, and slavery around the world. So they took the word out, but that's a, that's a bad thing, because slavery there in that context is a good thing. Because really, you have two choices in slavery. You can be enslaved to yourself or enslaved to your Savior. Savior slavery is a good thing. So Paul and Timothy were losses. They were slaves of Christ Jesus. They were free men, but they were slaves of Jesus. Notice that word slave is everywhere now. You ready? James, what does James say? James, a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. James was a free man. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was a free man. Jude, Jude is the brother of James. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude was a free man. And John in Revelation in the prologue is a slave of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the Old Testament very quickly. Finish with the new. We're almost done. Exodus. Children of Israel in bondage 400 plus years. The deliverer has been sent by God. It's Moses himself. Moses tried to free his people in his own strength, murdered an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave, thought the people would rise up and he would free them, and God sent him on the backside of the desert for 40 years to get his mind right. And when Moses, the Bible says, looked neither right or left, but looked one way, 40 years God was ready to use him. So now he sends him to Pharaoh. They were in slavery to Pharaoh. And what does God say to Pharaoh? Through his slave Moses. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to say to you, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. They are my slaves, not yours. And only by being slaves to me will they be free. Exodus 9.1. It's also an 8.1. I just I skipped that. I'm giving you 9.1. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Two choices. Serve the self. Serve the Savior. Finally, Galatians 2.20. Ready? I have been crucified, Paul said, with Christ. I no longer live. Paul's, Paul's gone. Paul had a couple neat things happen, didn't he? Saul's gone. Saul's dead, but that wasn't enough. Saul was really a bad man, right? Really bad man. But Paul says he's not a good man either. I got to get rid of Paul. Paul's doing some good things, but he sees Paul's got to go. I don't live anymore. Jesus, Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And he gave himself for me. That's why I live for him. He gave his life for me. It's not about me. It's about him. When freedom is slavery, slavery to the self. When slavery is freedom, slavery to Jesus. Now, freedom isn't free. Ready? We'll tie it together. This is our patriotic day. We tie it together. We tie the country and the Christian together. Watch how we do it. Very beautifully. Ready? 
In our country, you would agree, freedom isn't free. In our country, blood bought by brave men and women of the armed forces. I want you to know that it was an honor to see those of you who stood up this morning and, and you heard the claps, and the, and the claps weren't for you. They were given glory to God because God had captured your heart and sent you out on a battlefield to protect this great nation. This nation is blood-bought. Make no mistake, and there's two points. It cost all of you, all of you some. It cost some, all. But so too for the Christian. The Christian is also blood-bought, but not on the battlefield by men and women. Blood-bought by the precious Son of God. And what's the point? It cost Jesus everything. It cost him separation from the one who he had been with for all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he cried out, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Because of you and me. And when did he do it? Paul tells us, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rarely would a person die for a good person, for someone they cared for. Our military has died for their brothers and sisters and this nation. But now amp it up to the nth degree. God died in Christ for us when we hated him. And notice it says that while we were still sinners, Jesus didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. So some of you sitting here thinking, oh, pastor, if you just knew what I'd done, I don't need to know. He knows. He said, don't, don't, you can't get cleaned up. Come. Come just as you are. Because you can't get cleaned up apart from my blood. So you just come just the way you are and you receive me by grace through faith and let my blood cleanse you from the inside out. While we were sinners and hated him, he died. How do we close? Oh, let this sink in. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Where is their freedom? Apart from Jesus? In expressive individualism? Choosing the way you want to live, how you want to live? Where? That's freedom? You know that it's not. It's bondage of the worst kind. But if the Son sets you free, you are truly free indeed. Free now to do what? To be a slave to your Savior who knows exactly what is best for you and your life. He's the head and, and, and we are the body. But let me make a few things perfectly clear. We all need each other. So on a day that we honor the military and the first responders, let me ask you this question. It's a very familiar pledge. You're familiar with the Pledge of Allegiance? Sure you are. 
I'm going to ask you two questions very quickly. What does the Pledge of Allegiance start with? Say the word out loud. I. What does it end with? That took you a while to work through it. I pledge allegiance to the flag, and I say the medical to the Oh! Got it! Took a while, but that's okay. You ever wonder? Do you ever wonder? Why does it start with I and end with all? Because we each need all of us. It takes all of us to build a country. It takes all of us to build a community. It takes all of us to build a church. You are invaluable to God's mission in this world. There are no extra Christians. There are no extra people. God doesn't need any one of us. One day I'll be gone from this pulpit in a distant memory. I sometimes think, oh God, you need me today. Then my wife quickly corrects that when she overhears me saying, really? You really think God? But if you're not needed, what are you? You're wanted. You know, what it, you know what it means to not be needed but wanted? To be wanted. How many experiences in your life have you been unwanted? We've all gone through them. We've all dealt with rejection. The most difficult three years of my life, the most difficult, middle school. Went from an elementary school right down the street, got bust into middle school. I was an overweight middle school kid. My worst time of every day was P.E. You ever, you ever stand in a P.E. line when the two best athletes are picking teams? And they go down the list and they're picking and the list and the line is shrinking and you're still standing there and you're, you're waiting and you get to the end and there's no one else there and I got to hear these words. Well, I guess we'll have to take bowling. Let that smite you one more time. But not on God's team. Jesus says, I want you. I want bowling. I want you. I want you. And I want you. And I want you. I don't guess I have to take anyone. I want you. And I'm died to get you on my team. So now, who will you live for? Yourself or your Savior? Choose your chains. Choose them wisely. And know that when you make a mistake and you choose the wrong ones, He's already forgiven you. Get back up, dust yourself off, and get back going again. His mercies are new when? Moment by moment. And I praise him for that truth. So with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus says, come. Will you come to Christ? All who are weary and heavy laden, come to Christ. Put your doing down and come to Christ. Get your chains off of yourself.
and put them on your Savior. By grace, through faith, come to Christ. And salvation is yours this moment forevermore. If you've never prayed, pray with me now. Bow your heads. Father, if there's anyone here or by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Jesus, give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. And may they say these simple words in this simple prayer. Oh God, I heard the truth today. I heard good news and I heard bad news. But I heard the greatest news of all. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. And you're not waiting for me to get clean. Oh God, I heard the truth and I believe in it. And now I want to put my trust in that truth. I transfer my trust from myself. I, I, I take the chains off of myself. Oh God, I want to be chained to you. Set me free. Free to be your slave. To serve you all the days of my life. Sit on the throne of my life. I surrender completely to you, O oh God. And I do all of this in Christ's name. And Father, for the rest of us, some have been walking for decade after decade after decade. Keep walking by faith and not by sight, knowing that he who began a good work will one day bring it to completion. Until that day, let us all put the gospel on display. In Christ's name, amen.